Good morning, everybody. Let's take our Bibles to 2 Kings 25. That's my fault. Uh, but what I was, no, I didn't turn the mic on. But basically, all I was saying was this is the last week for our 2 Kings series through the last week in the Old Testament. We're going to be jumping into the New Testament. Um, we're going to be jumping into a series on why we believe what we believe. It's going to be about doctrine, but don't let the word doctrine scare you because it's not a rule we use for like rules grumpy old men make that they don't want to argue and debate about. It's just uh, it's what we believe to be true about God and the Bible and how that really opened my eyes to the magic and wonder of our world and how amazing that really is. And I was talking a bit about angels and how they interact with our world and creation and, and how it really was just a magical place in the very beginning before sin messed it up. And we're going to go through all of that uh, through the different areas of doctrine. Anybody know how many different areas of doctrine there are when we break them up? You should know for sure. You took the same class as I did. Oh, I'm telling Brother Stewart. Is it four? It is not four. It is not seven. Let's go for ten. Ten. Is it four again? It's ten. There are ten areas of doctrine. And I'm going to give you handouts for this stuff. It's some handouts that I got in Bible college. I won't give you everything I was given in Bible college because that will just overwhelm you completely. But I have some handouts that have like the areas of doctrine and what they mean. You've got theology, which is the overall study of God. Then you've got bibliology, which is the study of the Bible. Then you've got paterology, which is the study of God the Father. Then you've got Christology, which is the study of God the Son. Then you've got pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit, right? Then you've got um, anthropology, which is the doctrine of man. Then you've got hamartiology, which is the doctrine of sin. You've got soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. Have I talked about angelology yet? No. Angelology, right? Uh, you've got, and then you've got ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. And then you've got eschatology. And eschatology is some people's favorite because it's the study of end times you're saying uh pastor that's 11. we don't really count theology right as one of the 10 because it's an overarching of everything else that follows right and it's broken up into paterology christology pneumatology which is the trinity so it is 10 i guess technically you could kind of say it's 11 but it's 10. And we're going to go over all of those things, and we're going to learn a lot, and it's going to be a fun time, I promise you. It's going to be a lot more fun than what it sounds like me talking about it here. So, looking forward to that, but let's not get the cart before the horse. Something else wrong with the stream? Okay. Okay. Nice. Excellent. All right. Second Kings 25. By the way, did anybody listen to the podcast this week? I'm not calling you out. I'm not going to get on to you. But if you'll check the podcast from a couple weeks ago, and then check this week's podcast. The audio with the mic being here is 1,000 times better. Oh. It is. It is crisper. It is cleaner. It sounds like a professional podcast. It's amazing. Editing it, normally I have to put it into Pinnacle, and I have to go into the audio, and I have to boost different things, trying to make it sound clean without making it sound fuzzy. And uh, I didn't have to do anything to it this week. I just clipped the beginnings and the endings. And uh, it was a good time. So be sure to check that out. It's nothing else for a few minutes just to see how much better the audio is. Uh, but in 2 Kings 25, the title of our lesson this morning is Israel's Tragic End, Part 2. 
And uh, our first point this morning, because verse 1 jumps right into it, our first point this morning is the fall of Judah. And uh, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host, against Jerusalem, and pitched against it. And they built forts against it round about. And the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broken up. And all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between two walls, which is by the king's garden, which is on the southern part of the city. Now the Chaldees were against the city round about, and the king went the way toward the plain. I'm assuming it means the plain of Jericho, which is northeast of Jerusalem. And the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains. Yep, plains of Jericho. There we go. And all his army were scattered. I read this 14 times studying this lesson. I never saw that it said plains of Jericho right there. In <laughs> um, the plains of Jericho and all his army were scattered from him. So the king is running by himself. He's got no soldiers to defend him. So they took the king, verse 6, and brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah. And they gave judgment upon him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with fetters of brass, and carried him into Babylon. Now, so this hits you as heavy as it needs to. They found him. They drug his children before him. They murdered his children before his eyes and then stabbed his eyes out. So the last thing in this world he ever saw was his children die. Let that sink in for a minute. And then they bound him with fetters and carried him captive to Babylon. Verse 8 says, And on the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which is the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem. And he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the house of Jerusalem, and every great man's house burnt he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. Now the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon with the remnant of the multitude did Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carry away. But the captain of the guard left of the poor of the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen. That is people who tend to um, vineyards for grapes, you know, grape juice and wine and that sort of thing, and also people who tend to flocks of sheep and so forth. Uh, and that, that's the sort of thing that they were left to tend to so that Babylon could benefit from it. Uh, but we do see several things that we need to talk about before we go any further. The first of which is where it says the city was besieged 
unto the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Now that's pretty huge because that means the city of Jerusalem was under siege from Babylon for up to two years. Now imagine how long we've been dealing with COVID. That's how long they have had the world's most powerful army surrounding their city, steadily attacking it for two years. Imagine living under those conditions for two years. Imagine being afraid of a violent and bloody destruction for all of your loved ones for that long. Judah was under the greatest distress they had ever known in all their history. And this is due to their rejection of God within their nation. Now we've talked about on several occasions how it's not a parallel from Israel to America. Israel is God's children. America is a place of freedom of religion, a place founded on uh, the word of God, people coming here because they wanted to worship God in the way they saw fit, but it is not God's children. So the similarities are not the same. However, what does compare is Christianity today, uh, the saved, uh, what you might call the church in a figurative sense. That does parallel because what Israel found out here in chapter 25 is what life is like without God. And that is what they wanted to know about because when a Christian begins to imagine what life is like without God, oftentimes what you begin to imagine is a life where you get to do whatever you want to without any consequences. Right? If you live life without God, I can go out and get drunk whenever I want to, and uh, nobody can tell me otherwise. Right? If I live however I want to, I can go out and I can sleep around with anybody I want to, no consequences, I can do whatever I want to. Right? I can lie and cheat people and steal to get ahead at work. No consequences. Do whatever I can to get ahead. Don't have to act like a Christian anywhere. I can do whatever I want to. That's usually what people imagine when they contemplate living life without God. However, what Israel found out is that their imagination did not match up with reality at all. This is life without God. What they're living through right now. And it's the same thing that's true for us. We imagine not having, not having to abide by the Lord and His commandments. It's not going to be freedom to go out and live life the way you want to. It's going to be pain. It's going to be consequences. It's going to be misery. That lifestyle comes with its own consequences. There is a pleasure of sin for a season. And I'm not going to lie to you. That's probably fun. I wouldn't know. I've never lived that lifestyle, but I'm sure there's some fun to be had in that for a month, maybe two, maybe even up to a year for some people. But at some point, those actions do start to have consequences. I don't know from my own life, but I can tell you countless people I have tried to convince not to live their life that way, went and did it anyways, and wound up messing up their marriage, messing up their life, messing up their kids. Ruining opportunities for themselves, ruining relationships they might have had but never could because they wanted to live their life the way they wanted to. That is life without God. 
The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, Wherefore remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, literal circumcision, that's in the Old Testament what separated the Jews from the Gentile world. Abraham was called for him and his family to be circumcised. Uh, that at that um, yeah that at that time ye were without Christ. So Ephesians here talking about those Christians before they were saved, right? Before they had Christ within them. It says being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The commonwealth of Israel being Christ, right? Being the Word of God, and strangers from the covenant of His promise. The word testament can also be used uh, back and forth with the word uh, uh, testament or covenant. You can use those back and forth. So when it talks about the covenants of his promise, it's talking about the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Covenant or the New Testament. And this is where it starts to describe what it's like uh, before they were with Christ, before they were saved in Christians. It says, having no hope and without God in the world. I'm telling you, the world becomes a much more wonderful, majestic place when you begin to see God everywhere it is. When you see God in His hand in everything, everywhere He is in this world, this world becomes a much more special place, much more amazing place. But those that don't believe in God and don't see Him everywhere that He is, the, the devil has blinded them to His presence in this world. This world is a much less special place. They don't realize it. They think it's just as special for them as it is for us. And that's not to say that it's not special for them. But what we have when we see God in the world is a level of amazement they can't, their minds can't even begin to comprehend. We live in an amazing world that the Lord's created for us. But when we begin to see that, wonder returns. You, you remember what it was like to be a kid and just believe in all these magical, amazing, special things? And how tragic it was when you found out that the world doesn't really work like that sometimes? I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail because I don't know who's on the other side of that camera. But you know what I'm talking about. Seeing God in the world returns that sense of wonder to us as adults. It gives it back to us. It returns hope. It puts God back in the world. And then at the end of that verse says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Believing in Christ gives us hope and gives us that wonder. They were living without God and the city being besieged and living under this fear and tyranny. That is life without God. It also says, and this is where it gets dark, okay? So those of you with weak constitutions may want to go take a bathroom break. You got little kids in the room. You might want to put on a Sunday school lesson for them or something. This is going to get kind of dark. It says, and it's not going to sound like it's going to get dark at first, but I promise you it'll take a deep turn. In verse 3, toward the bottom of verse 3, it says, 
there was no bread for the people of the land. The depravity and evil of the people of Judah truly abounded in this, their most desperate time. I want you to mark your place in 2 Kings 25 because we're going to be back in a minute. But I want you to turn with me to Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4. Uh, it's going to be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. And it is the Lamentations of Jeremiah. We talked about how Jeremiah was the prophet of this day. Right? And he saw the wickedness and the terrible evil of Israel and he wrote it down for us to witness for ourselves by reading uh, the book of Lamentations. This right here, 2 Kings 25, this is what the book of Lamentations is about. All right, And in chapter 4, we're going to start reading in verse 9 and we're just reading a couple of verses. It says, They that be slain with the sword are better than they that be slain with hunger. Right? Because if you're killed in these sieges, that's immediate. But to survive the sieges was more painful and more horrible than to have died immediately. Those that were killed in the sieges had it better off, what uh, Jeremiah is saying here. Uh, For these pine away stricken through for want of the fruits of the field. And this is where it turns, takes a very dark turn. The hands of the pitiful women have sodden their own children. They have taken their children and boiled them for meat. And took the meat from their little human bodies and ate their own babies, ate their own children. We still think it's fun to go out there and live life without God? They were their meat in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The question becomes, when things get bad for us, probably, praise the Lord, we'll never get this bad. But when things get bad for us in life, what actions do we take? Right? Because that's what determines what kind of a person you are. It's what do you do when things get bad? Do we continue to obey the commands of our king? Or do we surrender to the most depraved and vicious parts of our selfish minds? You might not be eating your children, but are you remaining loyal and faithful to that which you know God wants you to do? And you know it because the Bible says it. Do we tell the truth even when it's going to cost us? Do we keep 
righteousness about us, even though we can feel our blood boiling inside us, angry at somebody? Do we continue to get up and go to church? Do we continue to get up and pray? Do we continue to get up and be faithful to the Lord, even when our minds are depressed and down and we know we don't want to? It's the actions we take that determine what kind of a person we are. And Israel has shown what kind of people they are. This is a godless Israel. Of all the people, of all the wicked peoples that Israel has slain in the lands, without God, they are without a doubt the most wicked of all. Then we have this phrase, as all this depravity is taking place, don't worry, it gets worse. The city was broken up. Now the phrase for broken up in the original Hebrew, because sometimes when I'm talking about what a word means, I mean in the Hebrew, not necessarily the literal English word for it. So in the original Hebrew, it means to make a breach. Right? That's what it means. So we can deduce from the context of that part of that this part of the wall had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And maybe you're saying Babylonians, it says the Chaldees or the Chaldeans. That's another word for a specific group of people in Babylon. Right? So when it says the Chaldees or the Chaldeans, that's still the Babylonians. So they have officially breached the walls of Jerusalem. This was the beginning of Nehemiah's plight in that the destruction of these walls left him with a terrible burden. Remember the book of Nehemiah? He receives word that the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down, right? And all the gates are destroyed and the city lays exposed to looters and to thieves and to violent men. And he has a terrible burden for his hometown. And he pleads with the king to let him go and rebuild the walls. It's what Nehemiah is all about, going back and rebuilding the walls. This is the beginning of his plight because this is where the walls were destroyed to begin with. We see the soldiers fled their posts and ran for their lives because Israel no longer had the strength of the Lord to give them courage. The strength and the courage of these soldiers came from the Lord. And when God is no longer present, that courage dried up. Now they know what the Amorites and the Canaanites felt when Joshua conquered the land to begin with. The Bible says that when they conquered a certain strip of land that the Amorites and the Canaanites had no more strength within them, that their hearts melted within them, that their courage had dried up and they had no more strength left to fight and they fled for their lives. Joshua 5, 1 says, It came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until they were passed over, that their hearts melted, 
neither was there spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. This is when the land was first conquered. Joshua first came over. They began to take the land that is now being taken from them. They took the courage of their enemies and now their courage has finally been dried up. The spiritual strength that God provided with Israel is finally and terribly been found devoid. And then once that happened, we see that the armies of the Chaldees pursued after the king. Even the descendants of mighty King David had no strength left in their blood to fight for their people anymore. It's a sad day when those chosen by God to serve a high and holy purpose abandon the work of God uh, that they were called to, or else pervert it in order to save themselves. When God calls you to do something for Him, never shrink away from it. We should stand in His strength, doing His work, though the world fall against us. And then we see where they came in, everything terrible happened to the king, and they burnt the house of the Lord. They burnt the house of the Lord, they burnt the king's house, and every nice, big, fancy house of all the most prestigious people in Israel, they burnt those houses as well. So that everything decent and good was gone from the land. So we now come to that which gave the people of the book of Ezra their burden to go and rebuild the house of God and restore true worship to Israel. The house of God was a little used and often forgot about in their time. But what a terrible tragedy it was to them when they had to watch it being burned down. In the book of Ezra, one of the most tragic things you read about is when they went to go rebuild the house of God, they rebuilt the temple for the first time. Right? They could not build it as large and as amazing as King Solomon did. They just did not have the resources for that. They made the, the house of the Lord that they could, but it was not as nice as the first one. But the lesson there should be because there was a sound of praising and a sound of weeping so that you couldn't discern from the praising and the weeping when you heard it. Because the people who remembered the first temple were weeping. But the young men who were proud of what they did and didn't know of the first temple, they were just shouting praises. But the lesson that we should learn is that a magnificent, glorious building built to the Lord that is not being used is not as good as a shack that praises the Lord every day of the week. I would rather have church in this house having a building full of people, people joining us online every week that praise the Lord than to have a massive building that never sees true worship. 
that's the lesson from Ezra because they had this building. It was amazing. It was Solomon's temple and it was huge and it was wonderful, but they filled it with idols and they worshiped those idols or else they went to their groves or they went to their special places and they never darkened the door of the temple. They had this wonderful thing and they never used it. So the Lord took it away. And it wasn't until the Lord took it away that they started to miss it. Sometimes we have to lose something in order to realize just how important it actually was to us. Luke 15 tells the story of a, a woman. Jesus is telling a parable of a woman who's lost a coin. You could say, what's the big deal about a coin? Well, it's a coin made out of pure silver. Right? It's like a silver medal you might get in the Olympics. You know, this was big deal, pretty special, very valuable. And in verse 8 it says, Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which I had lost. Right? She had ten pieces of silver. One piece of silver would have been special. But she really learned how valuable just one of those ten pieces was when she lost it. Right? It's only after we lose something sometimes that we really begin to appreciate its value in our life. Sometimes God's got to take something from us for us to appreciate the blessings we really had that we just didn't give Him credit for. It's only after they burnt the house of the Lord that they wanted a house for the Lord. Which brings us to our second main point this morning. The destruction of Judah's leaders. In verse 18 of chapter 25, it says, And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the door. And out of the city, he took an officer that was set over the men of war and five of the men that were in the king's presence which were found in the city and the principal scribe of the host which mustered the people of the land and three score that's sixty men of the people of the land that were found in the city and Nebuzaradan captain of the guard took these and brought them to the king of Babylon to Riblah and the king of Babylon smote them and slew them at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was carried away out of their land. So we see it says the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, took the second priest, took the three at the door, all these men, and took them out somewhere and murdered them. They destroyed all the religious leaders of Judah, probably to keep them from being able to rally the people together against Babylon. So then the, here comes the question. 
In moments as terrible as this, this becomes our question. Why? That's the question, isn't it? Why? Why did the Lord let his own priests get destroyed when it was the idolatrous people of Judah that were the ones supposedly that were supposed to be punished? And you could make the argument that these priests were equally corrupt along with the rest of Judah since they did nothing to stop the idolatry and violence taking place in Israel, including within the temple itself, and most likely partook in the idolatry themselves. But I think we can do better than that. I think we can do, do better than God was just striking down people he was angry at. I think we can find a deeper purpose for these debts. Because aside from being the chief priest, Sariah was the father of a very important person in the Old Testament, Ezra. Sariah, the chief priest in 2 Kings 25, was the father of Ezra, the priest. The priest who came down and restored true worship to the house of God in the book of Ezra. Ezra 7.1 tells us that. So imagine what kind of doctrine Ezra might have learned if his idolatrous father had been around to influence him. The chain of idolatrous, corrupt, polluted priests would have just continued down the line indefinitely. God had to remove the corrupt priests, not just as punishment, but so Ezra and his generation might have a chance to return to true worship when the time was right. So that Ezra could study the scriptures, learn about the one true God of heaven, learn how to worship him the right way, and when he was called back to Jerusalem, could teach everybody else how to do it as well. If his father was still around, none of that would have ever happened. More than just an angry God having people destroyed, there's a purpose. He's doing this to give Israel hope of returning to him someday. We see thirdly this morning, the rebellion against Gedaliah. In verse 22, it says, And as for the people that remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had left, even over them he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, ruler. And when all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, there came to Gedaliah, to Mizpah, even over Ishmael, the son of uh, Nethaniah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and Sariah, the son of Tehumeth, the Nephthanite, and Jaazaniah, the son of uh, Maachathite, they and all their men. And Gedaliah sware to them and to their men and said unto them, Fear not to be the servants of the Chaldees. 
Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the seed royal, came with ten men with him and smote Gedaliah that he died. And the Jews and the Chaldees that were with him at Mizpah. And all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the armies, arose and came to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldees. So we see that uh, the entire this you know this entire portion of scripture here that we just read is indicative of the kind of chaos that had become the norm for the people of Israel and Judah. Have you gotten to the point yet uh, here recently where the news pops up and some other insane crazy thing happens and you're just like, oh, another one? Okay, that is the chaos they were living in in this day. It's just a crazy time for them. On the surface, you might think, reading the story, that the rebels are the good guys, right? Because we love a good rebel story. Or at least most of us do. But we might think that these rebels, in particular, are good guys because they're fighting against the violence and oppression of Babylon. But it was never God's will that Babylon be rebelled against. And that might seem odd to you, but... And the book of Jeremiah, chapter 38, verse 16 says, So Zedekiah the king swears secretly unto Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord liveth that made us this soul, I will not put thee to death, neither will I give thee into the hand of these men that seek thy life. Then said Jeremiah unto Zedekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, just so we're clear about who this is that's talking to you right now, if thou wilt assuredly go forth unto the king of Babylon's prince, uh, princes, then thy soul shall live, and this city shall not be burned with fire. And thou shalt live and thine house. God told Zedekiah, go to the king of Babylon and surrender. You will live, yours will live, the city will not be burned to ashes. All of this wickedness we read about is a direct result of Zedekiah, Israel's final king, having one last spout of disobedience to the Lord. It could have been avoided. But once Zedekiah decided to try to extend the idolatry of Israel, God had no choice but to utterly destroy it. Have you ever seen a, a, a place in the woods somewhere that a fire had broken out. It looks like a big black mark on the ground. You know, you've got one right next to the other. You've got nice green grass next to black dead ash. And it's a horrible thing. But you know what happens when a natural fire breaks out in the wilderness? It grows back. Sometimes stronger than the rest of the forest. Sometimes you've got to burn it to the ground so that it can grow back better than ever. God had to let this burning, this purging take place so that Israel may have a hope of returning to their salvation one day. Basically, uh, 
Although it is important to note that Gedaliah was the son of Ahikam, who was an influential officer at the court of Josiah. Well, remember Josiah? He was Israel's last good king. And Gedaliah's father was a protector of the prophet Jeremiah. Right? So it's quite possible Gedaliah wasn't some evil guy that needed to be rebelled against. He was one that was following God's will. Did not need to be rebelled against. And was killed anyways. So basically there was no good guy in this story. And if there was, it was Gedaliah, the man that was killed by Ishmael's rebellion. And this is the kind of chaos you find when you're living life without God. Which brings us to our fourth and final point for the morning. The compassion for Jehoiachin. Anybody remember Jehoiachin? Let me refresh your memory a little bit because there's been a lot of names. I know. Basically, Jehoiachin was the king when Babylon very first came down. All the way back in the day. They came down and he just surrendered. Right? He didn't rebel. He didn't try to fight back. He just surrendered. Walked right up to the king and said, here you go. So he was arrested, but he was allowed to live, and he's been sitting in prison ever since. Israel has a king that's alive and well in a prison somewhere in Babylon. And all these other kings that have been violently killed have done so because they didn't listen to God and just surrender. Right? But Jehoiachin, the guy who very first had to deal with Babylon, he's still alive in a Babylonian prison. All right. So in chapter 27, we see Jehoiachin and the compassion for him. It says, It came to pass in the seven and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and the twelfth month on the seven and twentieth day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, out of prison. And he spake kindly to him, and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, and changed his prison garments. And he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. And his allowance was a continual allowance, given him of the king a daily rate for every day, all the days of his life. Jehoiachin was the king of Israel before Zedekiah, before all of these, and was dethroned by a Babylonian as well, but uh, had his family and his life spared by surrendering. Merodach had pity on Jehoiachin and allowed him to live out his days in a more comfortable setting. What was the difference? What was the difference between Jehoiachin and Zedekiah? Why was one treated gently while the other one was treated brutally and viciously? The difference was humility. Right? I'm not talking about being humiliated. I'm talking about being humble. Right? Having a humble spirit within you to know when you're defeated. 
Jehoiachin had some humility, at least enough to admit defeat in the original Babylonian siege in chapter 24. Then gained more humility, more humble spirit, through his 37 years of Babylonian imprisonment. But Zedekiah, he was too proud to admit that he was defeated by Babylon and tried to run away in the middle of the night. Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. In times of crisis, we often ask ourselves how God could allow all this evil to befall us. Why didn't he prevent this from happening to me? The answer is the same for us as it is for Judah, and these questions reveal the same pride within us that was found within the people of Judah in the final days of Zedekiah. God is not your magic genie to fix all your problems or prevent them from happening. He is the master craftsman of the entire universe. He's, uh, every star in the night sky he forged, every planet within our universe he sculpted. All of existence is held together by the might of his power. And with all this in mind, what is mankind? We are but cosmic specks floating along in the universe. To think that we should command God to fix our problems or else get angry at the Lord for not preventing or fixing our problems as though we were angry at a servant for failing to adequately perform his service to us. He is the Lord, the Master, the King. And we should consider ourselves lucky that He ever considered us. And yet even more so that all He does and all He allows is for the greater good of all us cosmic specks. Whether we can comprehend that or not. That is... The tragic lesson of Israel's tragic end. And for 400 years, God is silent. For 400 years, God does not talk to his people anymore until one day. There's a group of shepherds watching over their fields by night. And a portal opens out of heaven. And angels flow out of it. Something Israel has not seen in almost a thousand years. And those shepherds look up into the sky seeing something nobody has laid their eyes on for many generations. And they sing. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And they tell them, a baby is being born. A baby that should be born in a, in a palace. That should be born in the most prestigious temple man can possibly produce. But instead, he's born 
in an animal trough in an open door barn in the middle of the cold. And that little baby born with nothing born into an ordinary middle of the road family is the savior of the world. But for 400 years God stopped talking to his people. Beautifully setting the scene for the Savior to be born. He says, I'm mad at you, but I never stopped loving you, and I'm still going to bring my son to the cross for you. And because they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, we can sit here today doing the work Israel was supposed to do to begin with. So that concludes the Old Testament. That's the end of the story. We've talked about a few post-exilic things. We've talked about Ezra. We've talked about Nehemiah. We've got a series on Esther. But that is the end of Israel. And when we start our next series after Cahoots next week, we're going to talk about what it means to be a New Testament Christian. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. Thank everybody for being here this morning. Uh, we will be back, uh, let's say, 10 after. <laughs>